Alright, get your Bibles handy. We're going to be flipping and I'm going to need help this morning finding some verses. So, y'all be ready to do a little... Y'all going to HBO this morning? Help a brother out? Alright. Going to need it. Going to need it. Alright, guys, today we'll be back in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I bet you thought you when you started this class you were going to get first... Corinthians or Second Corinthians in, and then all of a sudden here we are. But uh, again, hopefully we'll see our good friend Mr. Key back uh, very soon. All right, today's lesson will deal with the mediator, and we will go over these questions for this sixth Lord's Day according to the Catechism. Question 16 of the Mediator. Why must he be a true and sinless man? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sin should make satisfaction for sin. But no man, being himself a sinner, could satisfy for others. 17. Why must he be at the same time true God? Answer, that by the power of his Godhead he might bear in his manhood the burdens of God's wrath and so obtain for and restore to us the righteousness of life. Question 18. But who now is that mediator? Who is at the same time true God and sinless man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is freely given unto us for complete redemption and righteousness. Question 19, from where do you know this? Answer, from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, afterwards proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and finally fulfilled by his well-beloved son. Amen. Okay, guys, we'll start with question 16, this idea that uh, the mediator must be a true and sinless man. Uh, if someone would get a ready, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and then someone else, Hebrews 9, 22. Uh, but again, why man, uh, ladies and gentlemen? Why must the mediator be man? Why not uh, a bull or a goat or an angel? Um, Joe, you got our scripture. Well, just because um, well, I wrote after it too, that he must be righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for another. So Christ is man, but he's sinless. Okay, so as you as you have to be a man, but could Joe Little pay the price for my sins? Why not? Amen. That's a good way to put it. He is a sheep that is not without blemish there. Uh first Corinthians fifteen twenty one, anybody? Shout that out to me. Edward. Whereas my man came by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
Man, that uh, verse, one of many we might cite, shows that death entered the world through man, through Adam, right? Um, and therefore, in order to rectify the situation, uh, it must come through another man who is also righteous. And he must, of course, since we're dealing with our foe death primarily here, be able to die. Hebrews 9.22, anyone have that? Carolyn Fields. Right, he has to be able to die. He has to be able to shed his blood there. And we're taught very early on why this uh, man and this righteous man must be able, uh, must be pure, must be of our nature, and must be able to die. And this idea of blood is important, as uh, Genesis 4.25 tells us, if someone would get us Genesis 4.25. Eduardo. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore his son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Amen. And here we see that, you know, this promise uh, that through uh, Adam and Eve and their offspring, there would be a mediator. And of course, early on, uh, our first parents thought well, as soon as they had another child, you know, behold the man, uh, but not just yet. And then we also see the importance of blood. Remember Cain and Abel's offering? One brought uh, uh, animal sacrifice and the other uh, not so, and God was displeased because there was no blood offered. Uh, in that sacrifice uh, that we're taught that. So this idea, going back to Genesis, you have to uh, be able to die and blood must be shed for forgiveness of sins. And that is pictured um, in the uh, differences with Cain and Abel's offering there. Uh, but this promise of uh, behold the man... Um, is also there early on for us. So this is why man. But why uh, must he be perfectly righteous? Uh, Matthew 5, 48. Uh, anybody can get me Matthew 5, 48. Sarah. Right, we've got this thing, this command of the law that, uh, first of all, we all should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. As Joe explained earlier, um, all of us have fallen short of that, but our mediator uh, has to be perfectly righteous because if he was a sinner, he would need his own mediator in that case. And surely uh, he could not help us. Uh, and again, to kind of sum it up on this, the, uh, this righteousness and such uh, of the mediator, could somebody turn to Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17? 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself part likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Thank you, Scott. Doesn't that really sum up this whole first question of the Heidelberg Catechism right there and that um, short series of verses that why our mediator, why Christ had to be man, um, had to live that sinless life which we were unable to do, had to be able to offer his blood as a sacrifice and actually die uh, as our substitute uh, after having again fulfilled perfectly the law in every regard that he could save his brothers and sisters here with that. An excellent summary um, for that first question of the catechism on this Lord's Day. Um, of course, question 17, and we talked a little bit about this last week, so this will be a bit of review, but uh, why must he be at the same time true God? And again, the answer is that by the power of the Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtain for and restore righteousness and life. Uh, and then we use the example of a stick of wood uh, in our last class that if one of you were out um, you know, stuck in the wilderness, say in the snow up in the Northland where it's uh, apparently they're having blizzards and I give you this stick of wood, size of the pen, and I say, well, this, use this to keep yourself warm all night. Uh, that would be extinguished pretty quick. This is even, those of you that backpack and camp, you know, this isn't even the start of kindling. Uh, you shave it to get a fire going. Uh, sort of conversely, in this case, uh, in applying God's wrath, and the picture of that would be like a fire from a furnace, uh, each of us would be like the stick, little stick of wood boom, burned up uh, quickly. Uh, just like you're sitting in front of a campfire, even like your fire at home and you throw a little piece of paper or a little toothpick and you just see it go when you have a hot fire. This is the idea of the heat of God's wrath that has to be satisfied and that uh, even if hypothetically Joe Little could say, yeah, I want to, I want to take that bullet for my fellow man. Uh, he couldn't. He could not withstand the wrath of God um, uh, for a millisecond there uh, and still be in existence, which again reminds us, though it's not improper, especially as we enter into the Easter season and we'll have our Maundy Thursday and Good Friday services um, to... It's not improper to focus on, say, the beatings that Christ received, the 
slap, spits in the face, and what sort of pain it must have been to have nails go through hands and feet and then the straining to breathe. Uh, but what this teaches us is, again, not to minimize that, but in the greater scheme of God's wrath, um, that was minuscule compared to feeling God's wrath for the three hours uh, as the Father turns away and gives his full wrath that we deserve on the cross there. But only true God, we are told, only the power of the Godhead uh, could stand that. So, of course, the obvious question is we have these characteristics of the mediator, but who is the mediator, right? Who is the mediator in this case? And we know that to be, as the answer is, our Lord Christ Jesus, who is freely given unto us for complete redemption and righteousness. Now, you know, a mediator, some that's um, maybe not a term you use in your everyday jargon or work. Um, you know, an example, this isn't a perfect example with the Scripture, but um, in law, um, in civil law, um, you know, most of our cases here in Greenville County that are filed in um, circuit court here, uh, the civil forum, uh, a court of common pleas for private disputes, uh, are settled at uh, mediation. Probably 90-something percent. Uh, very few go to trial anymore. There was a rule put in place, oh, probably about 19, late 90s, by the state Supreme Court that mandated mandatory mediation. Uh, so while, say, if you looked at the Greenville Bar, has a little, you know, newsletter it puts out every month, if you could get an old copy of that, say, from 1990, and look at the verdicts, uh, for the month, and you'd see 20, 30 more cases, you know, going to trial in a month and being decided by a jury verdict. You get that same sheet today, though we have more litigation, more lawyers. Uh, you'll, <clears throat> you'll see maybe two or three civil cases that have gone to trial. Um, and what parties do in mediation is obviously um, you have uh, plaintiff and defendant and a mediator who sits down and attempts to bring some reconciliation, if you will, in the case uh, to where the parties can agree uh, and not be at enmity with each other in the litigation and settle the matter. Um, again, not a perfect example because I'm sure that many of the defendants uh, question where the, whether they've actually done wrong by the plaintiff and feel that they're uh, just being abused as a possible deep pocket to get money. Uh, and then you have certain 
plaintiffs who uh, one might could question the justness of their cause. Uh, is there certainly folks out there uh, who would be happy to take a dive in a Walmart and claim they slipped and fell and negligence when it's all a ruse. But you get the idea. Uh, more properly, in this case, in the Bible, uh, it would be one who reconciles two parties that are at variance by interposing himself and pacifying the offended party. So, more properly, in this situation, again, we have two parties. The offended party, who is God, and then the transgressor, who is us. Right? And Christ's role is to reconcile those two parties, actually interposing himself uh, to satisfy the wrath of God uh, in this case. Because as we talked about earlier in our lessons, uh, while God's attributes are perfect, uh, justice is one of those attributes. And that justice has to be satisfied. You know, it's um, this is not um, the theology of the forgiving grandfather, right? Who um, just looks the other way when the grandchild knocks something over or gets into something in the shed he shouldn't be into uh, and just forgives the sin by looking the other way. Uh, no, uh, because of the perfectness of all God's qualities, this wrath, uh, this punishment has to be satisfied somewhere. And in this case, uh, it is the mediator because we can't do so. As we talked about last week and the week before, um, I think we used Hunter as an example, even if from today on I could make him a perfect man, never sin again uh, from here on. He's got give 50 or so years of sin still to deal with. Uh, his debt would still go to the ceiling even if he could live out the remainder of his days in perfection. He still has that problem uh, that is insurmountable for him uh, alone, uh, but only Christ uh, can intercede for him there. So this is what we are taught uh, about the mediator. This is the basics of what the mediator is and who he is. And then there's this very interesting question. It says, okay, that's all good theology, I reckon, but from where do you know this? And the answer, from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, afterwards proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and the prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, and finally fulfilled by his beloved Son, um, you know, we probably, it was revealed in paradise. We looked at this last week, Genesis 3.15, that essentially the first 
hint of the gospel was given to the serpent. Obviously in the presence of the man and woman as God is having a conversation uh, with all parties to the tree incident there. But that is the first promise of the gospel right there in Genesis 3.15 about the one who was to come um, that he would settle this issue uh, between man and the serpent and uh, what sin has wrought. Um, So we have that, Genesis 3.15. We can go on and look at promises. For example, uh, I'm going to ask Scott, could you get Genesis 12.3? And uh, Rhonda May, how about Genesis 26.4? And... Joe, how about Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5? And uh, Edward, how about John 5, verse 46? And uh, Sarah, how about John 8, um, verse 50? So I think it's 50. My 0 and 6 could be a little messed up. But we'll just start, uh, y'all find that, and then we'll go through these on how how do we know this? How do we know this? Right, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and any of all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yeah, this promise that, uh, you know, through Abraham, you know, in you, all the families of the world. Hey, not just your little uh, insular family that's going to be pretty wicked in itself with many of the things your offspring do, but all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. How could that otherwise be than through Christ Jesus? Okay, uh, Genesis 26, 4. Stars of the heaven, and will give you your offspring, all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. I mean, so we see Abraham earlier, and essentially a very same promise given to Isaac about the multiplying him and how all these individuals as many as the stars in the sky that you count can't count will be blessed uh through him and the one who is to come from this line okay isaiah 53 uh, 4 through 5 okay surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteem him stricken smitten by god and afflicted he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. His chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Amen. So we've seen promises from uh, given to the patriarchs there. We go um, forward a little bit um, into one of the prophets, and uh, what a beautiful statement of the promises of God that uh, his substitute will bear our afflictions. Uh, 
he will receive stripes from the Romans and through all that he goes through, uh, we have that opportunity to be healed there. Okay, John 5, 46. Or John 5, yeah, verses, verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote me. Amen. This is Jesus explaining that uh, you want to know about me. I am all through what you folks call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, Moses wrote extensively of Christ, just as uh, the prophecy that Joe uh, read there, that this is the one who is to come to bless all these nations, uh, as we saw from the patriarchs. Uh, Moses wrote of him. Okay, John 8, 50. Man, who is Christ? Uh, he is a mediator between the offended party and the offender. He points to the Father as the one who has been offended and who is the judge and will declare us not guilty, not because of anything we've done, but that imputed righteousness of Christ to us and Him suffering that penalty uh, for our many transgressions. And those are just a few. We could go on, right, guys? I bet some of you have other verses coming to mind directly. Um, but these are examples here of how do we know this from the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first revealed in paradise, Genesis 3.15, and then afterwards proclaimed through the patriarchs, We've looked at a couple. The prophets, we looked at one significant prophet, Isaiah, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and finally fulfilled by his well-beloved son, uh, which we looked at his words. And of course, you know that these um, sacrifices and ceremonies of the law were pictures, this picture of um, penal substitution uh, through the sinner bringing, say, the lamb, placing hands upon it as, hey, this is what I deserve. This is a picture of what I deserve. The throat being cut for it to bleed out, a picture of that ought to be us, but it had to happen over and over and over again. So we know through that picture that that's not the final answer there. That's a picture of what's to come. Moses, we talked about in our last class and looked at the verses, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can't save any, <clears throat> anybody. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is our Lord's Day 6 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, again, as I said last week, hopefully we won't get to Lord's Day 7. We'll see Kirby and Helen back. I know this has been a difficult time for them, um, but Lord willing, we will see her uh, at church here very soon, and um, they'll be back with us. But if not, uh, that's what we'll have next week is Lord's Day number seven. And uh, with that, we'll close in prayer and um, get y'all to church if you didn't weren't there this morning. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your promises of the mediator and we thank you for his completed work, Lord, that we can uh, just praise you and bow down to you for and know that he has reconciled us to you uh, that we believe. So Lord, be with us the rest of this day as we contemplate the things you have done and uh, worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.